Knock, knock. <laughs> okay, who's there? Let us. Let us who? Let us begin the show. <laughs> That's cute. It's the Pages of Popcorns podcast. Jennifer and Kelia will edify you. It's the Pages of Popcorns podcast. Jennifer and Kelia are gonna talk, so you better damn well listen. Welcome to the Pages and Popcorn podcast. Today, we have a very special supplemental episode. It is our February 2021 supplemental episode. And at the beginning of the month, Leah and I talked about Enola Holmes, which is, well, some people might say fan fiction of Sherlock Holmes, and some people might say a continuation, and some people might say an interesting story, and whatever other people might say, a crash grab, whatever you want to call it. It happened. There was a book and then a Netflix movie and Lee and I talked about it. And I do not have a lot of experience with Sherlock Holmes. I have a little bit and we'll talk about that in a minute. But Jennifer has more and actually opinions about Sherlock Holmes. So we thought our supplemental for this month would be more Sherlock Holmes. There have been some really fascinating things done with Sherlock Holmes because he is such an iconic character. There's been tons of transformations and we'll get into it as we go through this because there's some bizarre things they've done with Sherlock Holmes that are fun and kind of awful at the same time. Mm -hmm. Just some like a real brief little history. I, my dad read Sherlock Holmes. He was always into Sherlock Holmes. And I remember one summer getting the, he'd got it at Barnes and Noble. It was this huge hardbound book and it was the complete Sherlock Holmes. And so I read it over the course of the summer, primarily so that I would have something to talk to my dad about. So we could, you know, share literature and and books and stuff and I don't really remember much of the stories I I think I remember Hound of the Baskervilles the best but that's because I read that one again later in school I I just kind of vaguely remember reading them very quickly and all in a row at the time when I was 13 or whatever I was much more interested in character development stories than mystery stories or you know, like the situational type stories. And so I found it very frustrating that there wasn't any character development. Now at 13, I don't think I would have been able to say that, but I did, that's how I remember feeling, you know, it was like, it was always kind of the same. And, and sometimes there were hints and you could maybe figure it out. And sometimes I feel like Arthur Cannon Doyle just kind of pulled some shit out of his ass and you're like, oh, okay. There was no hope for figuring that out. So, okay. Yeah. So that was, that was, my limited exposure. And then years later, my dad was like, oh, you like Sherlock Holmes. Here's a book. It's about a girl. It's the beekeeper's apprentice. And she's all super smart. She's like a junior Sherlock Holmes, except what it really was about was about a girl who was, you know, super smart. And she bumps into the retired Sherlock Holmes, who I'm pretty sure had faked his own death in this series and was like living quietly off in the, the, you know, countryside so raising bees he was a beekeeper and like they solve a mystery together and I think there were three books at least in the series that I read and then eventually they're kind of like together together and even as a teenager I was like this is weird like she's young and he's really old and like I don't uh, I don't know it was just it was a little strange but um I didn't imagine those, those books I looked them up they do exist the beekeeper's apprentice the Mary Russell and Sherlock Holmes mystery series by American author Laurie R. King. So that's uh, Beekeeper's Apprentice, 
a monstrous regiment of women, a letter of Mary, the Moor, O Jerusalem, Justice. There's a whole bunch. I only read the first few, and then I was like, nope and out of that. So there you go. That that about sums up my. Oh, and then I guess technically we watched the the BBC's reimagining of Sherlock Holmes with um, Cumberbatch, and I was fine. We watched them, and then moved on with life i don't know <laughs> i'm not a nerd girl for sherlock holmes i've talked a lot it's your turn tell me about your sherlock holmes journey and love or hate or whatever my mom loved the stories and i kind of put them down as the era of charles dickens who is incredibly wordy and was not something i wanted to get into i did see um one of the film adaptations of young sherlock holmes which is actually very well done and it seems to be a lesser known film it wasn't until I was in England on a program to study abroad that I was forced to read Sherlock Holmes for the first time. So I bought a copy in the airport for one of my classes, read it while I was um, in Ireland for a weekend, and was surprised by how accessible they were. And they're really cute, well-done little stories. So I got into it. And then I was able to go to the Sherlock Holmes Museum as part of this class and sit at the Sherlock Holmes chair with the Sherlock Holmes stalker hat and have the Sherlock Holmes pipe next to the Sherlock Holmes fire and explain one of these little stories that I read. Is so, there a picture of that? No, we didn't have cell phones back in that day where they had cameras and everything. Fair, so fair. I got to talk about the, the case of the blue carbuncle, which I used later on as an English teacher when I was teaching argument induction, uh, inductive reasoning. So yeah, that story has kind of a place in my heart just for those experiences. So you are a Holmesophile. No, I'm not that into Sherlock Holmes. There are people who are way into Sherlock Holmes. In fact, when they were doing the Cumberbatch series, there's something called a set lock or fans who would go and just check out where they were filming scenes. As a result, they had to film a lot more uh, indoor scenes than outdoor. Huh. Yep. So there are fans who get super into it. Um, I am you know, somebody who kind of likes it and then did a lot more research for the show. A little bit of history about Sherlock Holmes adaptation. So Sherlock Holmes is supposedly based on a real-life physician named James Bell. And that was somebody that Arthur Conan Doyle clerked for. So this physician was able to look at a body, could tell about his history, make all these really ingenious deductions from that. I say deductions, it's actually inductions. So deductive logic, you take... Uh, sort of broad experiences and you narrow them down to very tiny details. Inductive logic is the exact opposite. That's actually what Sherlock Holmes does. He takes, you know, these minuscule details and broadens it out to wider implications, if that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. There have been a ton of adaptations. In fact, Sherlock Holmes is considered the most adapted character. He's got the most portrayals of any character in literature. And there are some really amazing ones. So there's board games, there's comic strips, there's manga, there's tons of fan fiction, there's tons of published fan fiction, uh, comic books, film, theater, radio, all the all the mediums. It's been done. I think my favorite iteration of Sherlock Holmes was the television medical procedural house 
and he had a best friend named Wilson. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, faked, they were real subtle about that. Yeah, he faked his own death at the end. Like it was not. <laughs> it, was, it was definitely. And he had a a Vicodin addiction, which was similar to I guess Holmes in the original stories was uh, had an opium addiction. Uh, so cocaine and opium. Cocaine and opium. Yeah. Sherlock Holmes would get bored if he didn't have a case and would do these things just because. And his friend Watson would tell him, no, don't do the things because it's going to destroy your brain and your brain is actually really cool. But it didn't. It didn't destroy his brain. So is there a lesson here? Like, you know what, kids? If you want to be as smart as Sherlock Holmes, do a lot of opium. Have some cocaine and just, you know. Yeah. (laughs) Don't take that lesson. Just saying. So here's, you know, we were talking about uh, Benedict Cumberbatch and that is possibly because it's the newest, it's the most talked about right now and it's one of the worst adaptations to me so why okay so you were talking exactly about this earlier that you did not like these stories because they aren't character based they're mystery based Mm -hmm. Holmes is an interesting character but he's not the focus of the story the mystery is the focus of the story right I personally didn't like that. So Scandal in Bohemia is one of the most famous because you have Irene Adler. She is the most developed female character in all the Sherlock Holmes literature. And this is what happens with fandom. So she's the only one, and she's the only female who gets over on Holmes. She outsmarts him and she leaves off with her lover. And in this story, Sherlock Holmes is actually working for the bad guy in this. Okay. Yeah. So the basic plot of the story is there is this prince uh he needs to wed he unfortunately gave uh irene adler who is a very beautiful opera singer a dick pic which would be kind of terrible if that came out and scandalous so he hires Holmes to get this picture back or to kind of make her not a problem and she gets one over on Holmes, which is fantastic because Holmes is kind of a misogynistic asshole uh-huh okay okay yeah so it's a fun little story he has absolutely zero romantic interest in this woman. In fact, like one of the first lines, it was not that he felt any emotion akin to love for Irene Adler. And it, it's made clear. Sherlock is kind of asexual, although it's never explicit. There's never any romance. But fandom, because she's the only female character and she's an intellectual equal, they are, always get linked. Because so, people like they're happy ever after. We have to couple off. Heteronormative rules the day. <laughs> not just that. Like everyone's shipping all the time. And she was only in one story. Moriarty is only in two stories. But everyone's got to do the ships. Really? I thought Moriarty was a much bigger deal. Yeah, two stories. That's it. What about Mycroft? Sherlock's brother. Mycroft, like there's almost nothing of Sherlock Holmes' background. His brother is just barely mentioned. And Sherlock says, you know, he's even better at this than I am. That's about it. Wow. Sherlock is meant to be enigmatic. That's, to me, one of the first problems with Stephen Mott's adaptation into the Cumberbatch series is it stops being about the mysteries and it becomes about the character. Yeah, but he's making a TV show for modern day audiences like myself who need that or we're just going to tune out, right? Well, I don't know. I mean, you can't have shows about the mystery. That's sort of what House is supposed to be about, of you looking at the mystery. If you watch CSI, CSI is all about the mystery. Right, but even CSI and House and even Law and Order, they have slight character development over time, you know, and they have characters who you care about. 
absolutely. To not, and, but what's and the focus? The procedurals, right? Yes. So you're saying yeah. that Sherlock Holmes, that the new iteration should have been a procedural more the procedural than it was. Procedural would be more in line yeah. with the books. Didn't they do that in elementary? Isn't that a, a procedural Sherlock Holmes? Like, isn't Lucy Liu in that? <laughs> yes, she is. She plays Joan Watson. <laughs> yeah, so there's... Again, there are some really interesting adaptations. And just a quick thing, uh, there is a Japanese version of a very sexy female Holmes. Oh. Holmes and Watson are both female. And that particular Sherlock Holmes is the kind that walks out in a pinstripe uh, suit and stiletto high heels and kicks ass. So I'm shipping this now. Are they together? <laughs> There's not as much queer baiting. Ah. And that's something we'll get into. Okay. <laughs> but it is just kind of a fun little take on that particular genre. Mm -hmm. Because we can do that sort of stuff. We can play with gender in ways that weren't done earlier. You didn't think you were going to talk that much. But one of the big issues with the Moffat series is the queer baiting. Because there's a lot of it. And it's kind of awful. Yeah. That's because we want representation. And so anytime there's like even a hint, people get all excited. Well, they make a point of it in the show. Oh, yeah. They're constantly like, well, he's my friend. No, consultant companion. So they're doing a lot of that little, you know, we're, we're kind of in a gay relationship, but not really. Yeah. I mean, kind of. I don't know. I, it's been a while, I will say. But because Watson had Mary and I always got the impression from the new Sherlock show that or the new, the whatever, the Benedict Cumberbatch, that Watson was straight and Sherlock had like an unrequited, like crush kind of thing going on and would take what he could get with with Watson's attention and such. But it was, you know, because there are, there are male friendships. And so I'm very hesitant to say every time that there's two men that are close to one another, it's instantly, it has to be a queer thing because I think that that does a disservice to men and the relationships that they should be allowed to have with one another. You know, absolutely. I think it's great to have male friendships portrayed because that's I'm an issue right now in our society with men being allowed to be vulnerable. That's another side issue, but they're deliberately queer baiting, which is a whole nother thing. And so that's where I start having objections. So like supernatural, it doesn't do queer baiting. It's just kind of something the fans do. It's something that the show no, has fun with. I will like, argue with you on that. That is straight up queer baiting, what, what Supernatural did. But this is not a Supernatural supplemental. Well, I have too many opinions to, 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 to stifle this <laughs> to that. Oh my God, that would be a really fun podcast. So Irene Adler in that series is turned into a dominatrix who is not that smart. And it is kind of a problem. The thing with Moffat is he's really good at writing one-off episodes. So if he has to tell one story in one sitting, they're really good stories. So he wrote for Doctor Who, and some of the most memorable Doctor Who stories are just his little one-offs. When he has to do an overarching theme, he does it really, really badly. Everything is, you know, hinting that something cool is going to happen. So keep watching for the cool thing. While you're not watching the cool thing, you're waiting for the cool thing to happen. It's a lot of sleight of hand of not really reading the audience with respect. And he's really bad about that. So one thing I particularly dislike with Moffat is there are a bunch of fan theories because you know, we have the internet. Fans talk to each other. They have groups. And people would try to figure out the mysteries that were involved. And he makes fun of these people in the fourth season. It's like, 
you don't really understand Sherlock if you're making fun of these people. That's not cool. That's the whole point of doing these procedurals is for you, the audience, to get clues to maybe figure out what's going on. So when I would share a Sherlock story with my class, I was teaching at a technical college and had students who were doing police training. They could actually figure out a lot of the mysteries. It was impressive. I would give them, okay, so here's the basis, here's the facts, here's the list of things that you know. And they go, oh, okay, so this is going on with this, that's going on with that. And they would put the mystery together pretty well. And that was the fun of Sherlock. Even outside of the context, because I felt like when I was reading them, a lot of the stuff that he gleamed was very place and time for the culture and the people. Oh, you have a smudge on your right boot. That means that you just got out of a carriage, you know, or whatever it was. That's actually a really good one, because uh, there's a couple things that are specifically Victorian England that we wouldn't have today. And that's where my ex, so that's where somebody I lived with at the time, was really good at figuring it out because he understood the cultural background more than my students did. But my students could get from the clues what was going on. Mm. So in one of them, and this is the case of the uh, blue carbuncle, it's an ordinary black hat. It was a very ordinary black hat of the usual round shape. Hard and much the worse for wear. The red lining had been of silk, but was a good deal discolored. And it goes on with a couple of these you know, very specific things. You know, there was a hat secure, the elastic was missing, it was cracked, blah, blah, blah. And Sherlock goes through this evidence and goes to, well, you know, his wife doesn't love him anymore. This is what's going on with his life. He used to be rich, but now he's poor. He had foresight. He's fallen on hard times. He has weak character. And then he goes through and explains exactly how he came to those conclusions. And that is really where a lot of police detectives get their modus operandi of, of investigation. You know, you take these little facts and you try to put together something. Holmes engaging in experiments, trying to figure out how to base would shatter. Is it a bullet hole? Is it something that tipped over? Is there a trajectory involved? How does the shatter explain kind of the broader picture of what's going on? In the first story, a study in Scarlet, and that, you see him acting very odd and eccentric. But then he explains what he's doing later on. He says, oh, you could tell how tall a person is by the stride that they have. So how far away their feet are. And you go, oh, I just learned something that's actually kind of cool. And so after reading a Sherlock Holmes story, you felt like you were a little bit smarter, that you got how these things were figured out. Anybody ever like fact-checked all of that stuff? Like, can you really tell how f- tall somebody is by their pace? Because... Like that sounds like, oh yes, that sounds very scientific. And and then I think, well, my pace is very different depending on what kind of shoes I'm wearing. And it's different depending on, let's be honest, what time of the month it is. And it's different based on how much of a hurry I'm in when I'm in a hurry. Or if I'm walking down the street and I don't want, and I have my resting bitch face on, I'm going to walk a lot faster than if I'm just taking a stroll and listening to my podcast. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. So can you really tell how tall somebody is based on their uh, their stride? Is that a thing? To a certain extent, and then by foot size. No. So if you have okay. somebody with tiny feet and they're like long strides, they were probably running. You know, stuff like that. You're, you're putting together what information you can from these little tiny facts that you can get. Well, tiny feet doesn't mean tiny person. No. It, oh, no. <laughs> I've known plenty of people... My- I've known plenty of people who are my height who have feet that are way bigger and way smaller than me. And that's just anecdotal evidence. It's not a, you know, but I mean, like, I, I mean, there might be like a, like a general, okay. Most men who are over six feet probably have at least size 11 shoes, but there's, 
so many outliers and yeah there's a lot of variations so, so that's why it's not as of like but that's one of the things with Sherlock is that he will make a lot of these deductions and sometimes he's right, but not always. But you can see his train of thought and you can see how he arrived at these conclusions. And sometimes they're kind of stupid. Yeah, his wife doesn't love him because his hat isn't, what, clean or patched or whatever. So again, this is very Victorian England. And this is something that the person I was living with at the time picked up on is women were the ones who addressed their husband. And so they were responsible of taking care of their suits, making sure that they were dusted, all that sort of thing. Uh, Victorian England is a very dusty place because of all the coal burning. And so if he's got a certain kind of dust, it's kind of the fluffy stuff that you get from houses, which is a very different texture than what you get from the street. If there's a lot of it, you know, his wife really isn't taking care of him. Right. And obviously the only reason why a woman wouldn't take care of her husband is because she doesn't love him. Maybe it's not because she's chronically ill or is pregnant or, you know, out of town or anything like that. No, no, has to be a lack of love. Watson actually brings that up. Are you sure it's the wife? What's going on? Well, there's a clue earlier about the goose that the goose has, you know, this kind of a sorry letter to his wife attached to the card. That's how he lost the hat. So that's backstory that you didn't get. I'm sorry, because I'm trying to make this as short as possible. Right. No, I, I get I get that there's lots of little pieces to it. But I feel like one of the frustrations that I've had with a lot of different mysteries, but Sherlock Holmes specifically, is that it seems like the things that somebody is noticing and then those conclusions, they tend to work out. You said that sometimes he's wrong, but I just don't, I don't remember the times when he's wrong nearly as much because maybe they just weren't written about as often right obviously oh, you know stuff wrong all the time but is that is that fantastic thing yeah that's in the stories okay so maybe it's just so, a failure on my imagination to you know or like a failure for me to remember example uh, he says this man must be intelligent because the hat's large and he's kind of making a joke well with such a big head he must have something in it to fill and that's him just kind of being stupid and silly in the case of uh, a study in Scarlet, he's wrong at the very beginning. It's, he thinks it's one thing, it turns out to be another. Mm. So is there a lesson about being able to admit when you're wrong? Is that oh, yeah. a Sherlock Holmes thing? Because I, I just, again, don't remember that being a thing. And in the modern iterations, I don't I don't remember Brennan Cumberbatch being wrong and being like chill with being wrong. But maybe That's I'm... kind of the problem with that particular adaptation. Yeah. Because Benedict Cumberbatch is, he solves things by magic mind powers rather than <laughs> by this kind of deduction that you're supposed to do. There's just a lot of other stuff that feels like it, Mott doesn't really understand the source material. He's making a big thing about Sherlock, kind of makes him into a Gary Sue instead of, you know, just letting the procedural shine, which is what people really like about Sherlock. So if you want to be a new audience member, that's cool. You can have house. I just kind of feel like if you're going to do something based on a character, try to make it true to that character or make it an interesting interpretation. Okay. So now that we're, you know, have brought this up, I feel like it might be a good time to talk about the estate of Arthur Conan Doyle and their opinions about what kind of interpretations and adaptations people are even allowed to make. They have sued for bad adaptations. So Leah talked about this a little bit in the podcast about how they, you know, there's so, so much of the stories aren't public domain yet so if you want to have Sherlock be not a misogynistic asshole or you want to have him do this that or the other thing like you can't do that because that goes against the character that's in the 
cultural zeitgeist like you know that yeah so for the particular example that you talked about of the female character they were sued because sherlock holmes was shown as you know being too compassionate and being kind of sensitive and sweet oh they are happy to sue over things like that that seems silly though doesn't it seem silly like wouldn't you want your character to be liked by people wouldn't they make more movies if we liked the character and thus make yeah, you more but- money <laughs> Charles is one of those characters that you're fascinated by kind of because he's an asshole. Because he says the things that we all want to say and can't get away with. Maybe that's why I didn't like him. Well, yeah, you tend to have an immunity to assholes. You know, weird, weirdly. (laughs) For the rest of us who have bosses we don't like, who have to deal with neighbors who are sometimes really awful and creepy, it's kind of nice that we can watch a character who doesn't have to have our diplomacy to exist in the world. You have to be nice to your boss. House gets away with it because he's a genius. And it feels kind of good to watch somebody who's able to do that. Interesting. I guess there is that that part of us who likes jerky people being jerky. I don't know, man. I have a hard time with that, actually. I, I don't know. I'm not going to align to that. That's not me. I don't like assholes. <laughs> yes, it's weird trait that you have, Kalia. Everyone else likes assholes except for you. I'm pro anti-hero too. Like I really enjoyed the shit out of both the Shield and Rescue Me, for example. Just pulling off of some FX shows here. But there's been a lot of anti-heroes, you know. And that's Dexter. Okay. Again, though, I didn't like. I didn't watch Dexter because I liked Dexter. I was like, when is this asshole gonna get caught? Like, you know. And then there was like a moral ambiguity of like he's doing bad things but for good reasons and they're like but no it's still bad you're waiting for the bad thing to happen to him and he you know he was supposed to get his comeuppance and then they did a whole eighth season where apparently that's not what happened whatever my point is there are anti-heroes and jerky people in the world and we do sometimes watch them i personally prefer when they're on a journey and they're going through character growth For example, Cobra Kai is a show that I greatly enjoy. If you saw Karate Kid in the 80s, you're like that Johnny Lawrence guy was the bad guy and Ralph Macchio's character, Daniel-san, was the good guy. And that was all there was to it. It was very simple. And then you fast forward 30 years, 40 years or wherever, ah, 40 years. (laughs) And um, suddenly it's like a little bit more nuanced. And Johnny Lawrence was kind of a jerkwad and he's growing and changing and becoming a better person and daniel is kind of a pretentious snob who's not necessarily as good as he once you know what i mean and it gets complicated and so i enjoy those types of stories personally but now i feel like we're really into the weeds here so well to bring it back to the cumberbatch version Mm -hmm. there is very little to no character growth for any of the characters yeah so that i think is a personal thing that that is an issue with Moffat, where he does do the ubermensch. Here's my special character. He's perfect at everything. He's good at everything. And then if you're going to make it about a character, there's a lot you could do to have character growth, especially with somebody like Sherlock, because he is an imperfect character. Right. But are you arguing that we should have him grow, or we shouldn't have him grow? Because I feel if like you make it about the character, make him a character that has an arc. Otherwise, stay with the procedural and make it about a procedural. So you're not weighing in on which way is better. I'm saying that it depends on what you're trying to focus on. I think it would be better to focus on the procedural 
because Sherlock Holmes is interesting in the way he solves it. That's how you learn about his character. You know, he's not interested in basic physics, like the earth goes around the sun. He doesn't care about it because it can't help him solve a crime, but he gets super interested in chemistry. You know, I would imagine modern day he would be an entomologist because the study of bugs tells you a lot about a crime scene. So he's a really odd character in a lot of ways. He's fantastically eccentric and complicated. So you could do a lot of stuff with him if you want to make it about his character. But if you want to make it a procedural, then you know the character comes through the procedural. So is there an iteration of Sherlock Holmes that you think was a good iteration? Um, a true so iteration? A true iteration. Yeah. I've mentioned uh, young Sherlock Holmes because... It does a really good job of humanizing this character where you do get some personality, but you see the intelligence from the original series. They do try to bring that in and not make it a gimmick. So that's the kind of stuff I like. Hmm. Okay, so this is 1985, uh, written by Chris Columbus, Nicholas Rowe, and Cox, Sophie Ward. So not like a really well-known cast. Huh. The 1985 mm-hmm. American mystery adventure film directed by Barry Livinson and written by Chris Columbus based on the characters, blah, blah, blah. Meeting and solving a mystery at a boarding school. Okay. Uh, Tom Baker is considered one of the most iconic of the mm-hmm. Sherlock Holmes characters. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. is considered sort of the action star Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> Peter Cushing. This is uh, the first Sherlock Holmes that was filled in color. That's him at his best. And he was really into studying Sherlock Holmes. So he was a homophile. Basil Rathbone is probably the one that most people associate with Sherlock Holmes because he did so much of it. So I don't know that I have a favorite Sherlock Holmes. There is a really fun case of his name is William Gillette. He did a theater production where he injected himself live on stage with cocaine. What? Yes. Gross. And so you've just listed off a bunch of different. Well, you're asking me which one I think is the best. It's really hard to say. I think that there are some really smart iterations. Um, I thought the Japanese one was actually a really cool thing because doing some character switching. Like there's so much fan fiction. Like the 7% solution is not an author Conan Doyle version of it Neil Gaiman has written fan fiction of this that's published so there's so many versions there's a gay detective story with Holmes and Moriarty as the characters so have at it there's so much um Disney even did a cartoon version the great mouse detective oh yes I watched that as a child (laughs) yes Ian McKellen is kind of an interesting one because he plays Sherlock Holmes at 93 years old Hmm. So the age of Sherlock Holmes. Interesting. Why do you think that Sherlock Holmes as this character that didn't have a lot of character growth uh, in the original stories is the most redone, retrodden, reimagined, you know, reinterpreted character in English and British literature? I mean, do you think it's a testament to Arthur Cannon Doyle's writing? Do you think that it's more like right place, right time? It really captured the imagination and then there was printing presses and the accessibility of of stories and, and like the new wave of, of, you know, the, the whole Victorian period of, you know, how we read and what we read and accessibility. Do you think that it has to do with the actual procedural aspect and letting people try to figure things out and feeling a little bit smarter after, like you said, after they read it? Do you think it's Holmes itself or do you, himself, or do you think that it's, you know, more the stories and the writing is, I guess, my, my question. So Sherlock Holmes is not the first literary detective. Uh, that's usually 
like the first detective stories credited to Edgar Allan Poe was really close to the time that that was done. So part of what made Sherlock Holmes interesting is this is a time that forensics gets much better. So there's a lot of scientific innovation. There's a different way of looking at police procedurals. This is when things start getting codified and a lot of stuff is being learned. So that makes it really fascinating because there's this whole sect of science that is really new. You know, before that, how many detective stories do you have, really? So that's a big part of it, is that you got to learn something and find out more about the world. So Sherlock is eccentric and enigmatic, and he can almost be, you know, anybody. He's sort of somebody that you feel like you're writing along with, and you can kind of try and figure out what's going on. But it's not about him, it's about the procedure, which is what makes you involved in the story. You can kind of solve along if you're really good good at it and you can get smarter as you read more of them well cool beans i mean if we didn't have uh sherlock holmes we wouldn't have had angela fletcher yep or house or you know any of the other ones so yay sherlock holmes etc i think i'm good probably not for reading another one uh but that's okay <laughs> uh you might like there's a cartoon version where sherlock holmes is frozen awoken in future times watson is a robot for some reason it's wild wow yeah huh. Uh, yes, I, I love Law and Order, weirdly. Yes, all, all the Law and Order, all of them, even the UK. I'm currently watching Law and Order UK with my man, Bradley Walsh, who's also on Doctor Who, just to bring it all full circle here. Um, and I love it. I love it. I love it. And I, I feel like we wouldn't have those types of procedurals in some ways without Sherlock Holmes. So even if I'm not super into the Sherlock Holmes mystery aspect. I like the procedurals of law and order mystery aspect. So huzzah. And thank you, sir. Arthur Cannon Doyle. Yeah. I would say give them another shot. You know, give the short stories a shot. You might like them now that you're in a different place in your life. Uh, I'd rather not spend oodles of time in Victorian England. I think, I think is my thing. Uh, I will probably watch Enola Holmes again because I'll watch it with my kiddo. And um, if they make more, because who knows but if they made more i'd probably i'd probably watch more because freaking millie bobby brown is like the world's most adorable person on the planet and i think i'd watch her do almost anything and henry cavill's got a cleft in his chin and i'm a sucker for a person with a cleft in their chin just look at my partner my husband my daughter (laughs) so thank you for chatting about sherlock holmes and uh huzzah